0: Welcome back to the Comics Course, an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program, offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, as a public service podcast. As always, I am your ever-tortured professor, Hamby, because I just had another person die off my PhD review committee. (sighs) Yeah, I, I, I didn't... Think a 78 year old philosophy professor should be taking up skydiving for the first time, and it turned out I was right. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and that voice belongs to my also long tortured TA Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. We are back in the swing of things on this dreary Massachusetts morning. And today we're going to talk about 1010. You asked about 1010, Row, which mm-hmm. is why we're covering this topic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 1010 is interesting to me. Excuse me. Oh, uh, I should mention, if you want all of our social media links and everything else, they are in the show notes. And we are going to be expanding to also uploading to YouTube. It's going to be very simple upload to YouTube. Just the audio files, maybe with a little graphic. But all, but that link will be in the show notes, too, if you want to listen on YouTube. Um, We're also now putting out some promotional stuff on TikTok as well as Twitter and all that other stuff. So you can catch us there. Anyway, Tintin. So Tintin is arguably the single most popular comic character in the world by some estimates. I I think that's probably untrue, but certainly very popular with a persistent appeal to a lot of people. And when I grew up, Tintin was just kind of like the existence of countries in Europe. That, you know, I may have never been to, and I didn't know much about them, but I knew they existed and were important to people. Mm -hmm. And Tintin was like that. He was just a a cultural constant. The way the pull of gravity or, you know, electromagnetism provide constants in our physical universe. Tintin was a constant in our cultural universe. And I I certainly have read some Tintin collections over the years. Or albums, as they're sometimes called in European parlance, but I never really paid a whole lot of attention. Um, one, but you asked about ten ten, so I decided to start reading, and I actually discovered some things I did not know, and that I thought were pretty interesting in his history. So we're going to share those with the uh, worthless infidels that listen to the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. So where where should we start? Should uh, we start at the beginning? Yeah, that's probably the best place to start. So ten ten is the creation of a Belgium, uh, a Belgian writer, and artist mm. named George's uh, Reme. And he kind of rearranged some letters in his word and went by Herge as a creative uh, pseudonym. Um, a pen name, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now, I have discovered in the course of reading about this that the French do something the English do. Okay. Now, I I have a number of British friends over the years, and I've watched a fair bit of British TV and stuff. and, And I've noticed an ongoing joke that if you're, say, Scottish or Irish or Welsh, and you're successful enough, that according to the English, you are now English. Yes. You know, um... In fact, maybe the only figure I can think of they haven't done this to is James Joyce, if only because they might end up in a war they could not win with the Irish over that. Yeah. Um, you, you think the Irish get pissed off about religion. You should see how they feel about James Joyce. You know, nobody's stealing James Joyce from the Irish. And with good reason. Absolutely brilliant writer. I, I'm going to step away from Graphic Lit for a second for my listeners uh many people consider James Joyce very difficult to read and they're right he is he is almost intentionally obtuse in his writing however he is also absolutely brilliant and i recommend works like dubliners with absolutely no hesitation it will challenge you and reward you at the same time anyway that that's neither here nor there uh in regards to the podcast but herge was belgian from Belgium, uh, like Hercule Perot, And because he was so successful, the French have often kind of adopted him as French. <laughs> I, I always thought he was French. Nope, not at all. Although he lived in France quite uh, a bit. That's why. And, and of course in Belgium they speak French as their primary language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that confuses some people in this part of the world who seem to believe that every country only speaks one language, despite the fact clearly that in america we speak english which is from england uh as do canadians and australians and so forth no the australians speak australian it doesn't make sense well i mean i know that they add an r sound to the end of no which is pretty weird but you know i I, we can still recognize it i I think it's still i think we would count as a dialect not a language um But anyway, growing up, you know, I would hear about Tintin and Asterix. And I read Asterix as a kid, but I didn't read Tintin. And Tintin originated uh, pre-World War II from the mind of Hergé. Now, there is something we have to talk about a little bit about Hergé as part of his background, because it played into Tintin so much. And that is that Hergé was a hardcore Boy Scout. Oh, He loved scouting. He loved going out in the country. He loved camping. He loved hiking. He loved environmentalism. And he felt that the scouting organization was critical to sort of building a healthy mind and body for young men. Mm-hmm. And that it was a very good thing. And his first cartoons that he made featured a scout. Mm-hmm. That in many ways was a prototype for Tintin. In fact, later on, he would refer to Tintin ...as kind of the younger brother of that scouting character. And Tintin himself would embody many of those same virtues. Now, Tintin was a reporter, however, accompanied by his uh, dog, Snowy, who was a white dog. Uh, Hmm. Often, Snowy plays in the stories the role of the commentator... ...with snarky comments to make about what's happening... Uh, Which, of course, nobody can hear because he's a dog. Mm -hmm. So he's presumably just yapping. But we, the reader, get to see it. Now, as he got older, of course, Hergé needed a job. And he ended up working at uh, a French uh, uh, language newspaper that was run by a Roman Catholic priest. Mm. Now, this is not really as weird as some people may think. You know, some people, especially in the U.S., where Catholicism is... Uh, just a relatively small religion. I mean, Christianity is huge, but Christianity is split among a bunch of groups and Catholicism is not dominant in the United States. But in Europe, where in some countries, in some regions, Catholicism is extremely dominant, it's not that weird to see priests who are not actively in some sort of cloister or church but with the church, but have outside jobs. And in fact, that was the case of this particular priest, Father Norbert Wallace, who was the editor of the newspaper. Um, And I'm going to attempt to pronounce the name of this. I apologize to actual French speakers out there. I'm going to slaughter it, but I'm going to try nonetheless. Le 20e siècle. I'm probably not even in range to hit that with a nuclear missile. <laughs> the correct pronunciation. But I tried, folks. I tried. Now, Father Wallace has been while has been referred in some articles as more interested in politics than religion, which was probably the case. And the newspaper was very right-wing Catholic. And it was here that Hergé became... ...kind of the artist that he is. Uh, and here on the screen for you to see, Ro, I have a small self-portrait by Hergé of himself... Mm. ...and a photo of Hergé with Father Wallace. Oh, it's very realistic style. Yeah, and you can see that little simple line sketch drawing actually captures his own face pretty darn well. Yeah. Now, Wallace was kind of a father figure to Hergé. And this is where some controversy comes into the background... Because the newspaper was a very right-wing Catholic paper. Okay. Now, we are talking about the time period between World War I and World War II and the rise of fascism in Europe. Especially uh, in Germany and Italy, but other places as well. And there was a strong pro-fascist movement in Belgium. Mm-hmm. And it was actually supported heavily by Catholics because for all the faults of the Nazis, uh, they were Christian. In fact, Mm -hmm. Hitler identified as Baptist. And one of the major uh, oppositions to the Nazis was the Soviet state, which is atheistic. And the Catholics largely saw the Nazis, who were at least Christian, as the lesser of two evils facing the atheist Soviets. Uh, Also, Soviet ideology, uh, as espoused by at least their interpretation of Karl Marx's works, uh, eventually called for a breaking down of national barriers as the Worldwide Proletariat United, which was heavily opposed by the fascist parties who were nationalistic and still are today. I mean, nationalism and fascism walks hand in hand, along with racism and a bunch of other isms. And so, the newspaper that Hergé worked for was pro-Nazi. This is obviously pretty uncomfortable for people. Yeah. And, I mean, to tell you how pro-fascist he was, Father Wallace had a signed photo in his office of him and Mussolini hanging out together. And, you know, this has historical roots. Wallace was a reporter himself when he went to cover the fascist movement in Italy and basically joined it as a hardcore supporter before coming back to Belgium and running the newspaper. Talk about not aging well. Well, I mean, and I I forget aging well, I mean, it would have been controversial even then. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, eventually World War II happened and Hergé ended up. Uh, working for a newspaper that worked with the Nazis. Oh, joy. Now, it was pretty much a time period where either you worked with the Nazis or you didn't work because the Nazis were controlling the country. Yeah. And, of course, many people feel that the uh, ethical and moral decision would have been to just shut down operations Mm -hmm. rather than be supervised by you know, the Nazis, as a uh, a cultural approval entity. But Hergé uh, began to show his stripes in some ways. Mm -hmm. Now, many people will point out his origins with Father Wallace, and Wallace was extremely influential to him. Wallace not only gave him a job, but uh, directed him, was friendly, was an inspirational figure, and he supported Hergé. He, he did demand things of Hergé, but he also encouraged him. And Tintin would probably not exist if not for Father Wallace's encouragement. Mm-hmm. Um, and many people say, as a result of that, well, I mean, obviously Hergé must have been a Nazi sympathizer. But there's actually good reason to believe that Hergé, for all of his affection for his mentor, never absorbed those political ideologies. Mm-hmm. And... Really, if, if you look at what information and communication exists about the World War II era events, it becomes very clear that Hergé wasn't sympathizing with the Nazis. He just kind of wanted to get on with his job. He wanted to write 1010. He wanted to publish stuff. And he just kind of went whichever way the wind blew and did not care about the politics at all. And I apologize for those who hear some mechanical sounds in the background. Once again, Miskatonic uh, maintenance crew is doing various work when I decide to record. Because that's what they do. Now, oh, and I'm sorry, I'm knocking things around because one of the hounds came in and just started bumping my leg. Uh, anyway, so that was Hergé. Hergé did not care to seem to actually care about politics at all. But he was willing to work with whoever was in power so long as they let him do his thing. And you could argue that is an indicator uh, of a failed moral state, and perhaps it was. But while I think we can criticize Hergé for many things in that regard, uh, and and you could argue being apathetic about the Nazis is a pretty big moral failure in its own right, Um, I don't think we can argue that he was pro nazi Yeah, there's a big difference there. Right. Not good, but he didn't see it as violating what he considered core values. And these were core values that went into Tintin. Courage, loyalty, and friendship. And Tintin, based on these values, has become a European symbol. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try some more French here. I again apologize, folks. Uh, I'm going to quote Pierre Asouloun, uh, editor of a French literary magazine, Lire. Quote, I would have put 1010 on euro notes, Since Disney is the incarnation of American Yankee cultural imperialism, 1010 is the incarnation of European <laughs> resistance, end quote. I mean, that's a hell of a quote, right? <laughs> You're laughing. What are you laughing at? Sorry, the way he described America. <laughs> There's some truth to it. Yeah, that's why I'm laughing. But it's kind of bullshit too mm-hmm. Because as we'll see when we talk about the first 1010 album or, or graphic novel um, There 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 was non-American imperialism going on here uh, to, to say the history of Europe in the 20th century Was entirely one of resistance uh, Against imperialistic power I, I think is a bit of rewriting of history <laughs> Yeah but it's still funny uh, Further on Uh, Pierre says that Hergé, quote, had the intelligence to de-Belgicize him quickly after the first two albums and make him European, end quote. And there's there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, he does represent these broad values that I would argue aren't European. They're global values, Mm -hmm. you know, friendship, courage, loyalty. Mm -hmm. Is there any culture in the world that doesn't value these things? None that I can think of. Right. None. Um, I mean, obviously, individuals often give lip service to them rather than action, but they at least value them mm-hmm. as traits, uh, e- even if people are often bad at actually exhibiting them. And I would argue that is true. Tintin has become a symbol of, you know, these sort of strong character values. In a lot of ways, like Superman is to American. Mm-hmm. I mean,. Most people uh, know the Superman tagline of uh, for peace, justice and for truth, justice in the American way. And of course, uh, D.C. publications has for decades now removed the American way from that um, and said for truth, justice and I forget something else. But to again say that Superman represents global values. Mm-hmm. And. He does, mm-hmm. uh, which is partially represented by how popular Superman is in many parts of the world. I mean, he's his comics sell well perennially in every part of the world. So how did this exactly come to be? Well, it started when Hergé was 18. He was actually not working as a reporter or a cartoonist or anything like that um, at the magazine, which I won't attempt to pronounce again because I think I did an absolutely horrendous <sighs> job of it. You're laughing at me, I know. Um, Hey, I tried, I tried. I didn't say you didn't try. I need somebody who speaks French that I can send these things to and have them give me a pronunciation guide (laughs) in advance. I would ask somebody from the languages department, but last time I checked, they all had some form of syphilis that had previously been believed to not survive the Etruscan Empire because Mm -hmm. they attended some sort of uh, event at the Miskatonic University Museum don't touch them or anyone from the science department. It's Microtonic 101. Yes. Languages and science are both departments to avoid here. Absolutely. So, uh, Hergé uh, was working in the subscription department of this right-wing Catholic newspaper and later said of Wallace, I owe him everything. Now, a, a short list of some of the enemies that this newspaper went after parliamentary democracy because remember they're fascists you know they believe in the sort of taking power and ruling from the right and cultural conservatism we got to get rid of these godless commies and and people who are outwardly gay and anybody else that violates our traditional you know belgian family values i guess um jews freemasons Big businesses, Bolsheviks Big pharma uh, Big pharma, big anything I guess um, Which you probably would have been appalled To know that opposing big business Would have also been on the list of priorities For the Bolsheviks um, or, or at least communists uh, but, but basically most of society In some form or another Of course um, Just get rid of And un- Unless you have a very narrow view Of what actually makes up your culture which was easier in the early 20th century than it is now. Um, but the truth is, often in history, many places were more diverse than it appears if you look back in the media because representation was so awful. But that mm. helped people believe this lie that their culture was homogenous, which of course some people still believe today, which is incredibly toxic. And he believed in these traditional values. Mm-hmm. So while he, he somehow took a liking to Hergé, working in the subscription department, and started giving him books to read and started giving him more and more responsibilities. In fact, he pretty much arranged the marriage of Hergé to his secretary, Germaine Kakins. Wow. Right. They were engaged in 1928. Hergé wasn't even super. Big fan of the girl Nor the girl of him But Wallace was such a strong personality They decided well If he says we're a good match I guess we are mm-hmm. Let's get hitched And they did Wow. Um, And during the same time period In fact I think the same year that he got engaged To the secretary uh, Wallace decided to start doing a new children's Supplement Le Petit Ventime uh, I don't know what ving is, and I'm probably mispronouncing it, but "le petit," meaning the little, so you know the the version of their newspaper for kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got to get propaganda to them early if we wanted to sink in as well as possible. Yeah, 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 yeah. they got to grow up with that shit in their head, right? And the combination of him working and what and creating Tintin for essentially a youth propaganda machine for essentially the Belgium equivalent of the newsletter of the Nazi Youth League. Um, plus, during the occupation of Belgium from 1940 to 44, uh, w- w- when it was closed down, and him working for Les Sores, which was under control of the Nazis, is of course was given Hergé this reputation of being a Nazi sympathizer. Which I've already argued he wasn't. But let, let's... So let's just take that off the table. He was not a Nazi sympathizer, but he was perfectly glad to work for them so long as they let him do his thing. And they were perfectly fine with letting Hergé do his thing so long as he didn't espouse anything that upset the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. Now, does this mean that by this time, Hergé was already a name? It does! 1010 was instantly successful, and instantly popular, and only grew from there. So by the 1940s, there were already several 1010 adventure stories under their belts, and he kept putting them out. Hergé kept producing 1010 albums until he passed away. And posthumously, his last one was released. Um with a bunch of notes about the process and things like that. And since then, no new Tintin works have been done, although Tintin continues to be licensed for merchandise and some movies have been done and things like that. Mm. Steven Spielberg even made a live-action Tintin movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, Mm. I didn't find it. I haven't watched it. I'll be honest, it didn't particularly interest me. Um, I would much rather read the graphic novels than watch a movie adaptation. But the very first Tintin story was serialized in Le Petit, rest of newspaper name I can't pronounce, and then collected into an album. And this was done similarly for most of them. And this first one was very much directed by Wallace. He had an agenda and it was going to follow it. And the title of it is The Adventures of Ten Ten Reporter for Le Petit, In the land of the Soviets. And that's it right there. Mm. And you see him, you know, the typical image of Tintin that you see almost everywhere is the iconic Tintin with the red pants and the blue shirt uh, walking alongside Snowy. But for the cover of it here, they put him in a sort of uh, Bolshevik outfit with these classic Uh, Russian spires, like you would imagine in a Greek Orthodox church, or the Kremlin in the background. And the the premise of this is that Tintin himself is a reporter for Le Petit. Mm. He is literally the fictionalized projection of Herge himself, or at least an idealized version of Herge, onto the page. Wish fulfillment much? Yeah. I know. And... Let's just get into it. I I could talk about this, but I think as we go through some pages, we'll see some interesting things. Now, one thing I want to point out is the extremely simple art style. I forget the French for it, but Hergé would brag that he drew in what he called the clean line style. Now, in this first one, the figures are very simple. The style improves over time, and we'll see just in the next few books how Hergé's style becomes more sophisticated and better. But he continues to try to draw with these very simple, clean lines. And this is in many ways a rejection of art from the earlier age. Now, as we record this, we're also talking about Jack the Ripper. And we've looked at some cartoons that were published in British newspapers Mm -hmm. at the time. And you can see, as they, you know, talk about the the Phantom of Whitechapel and things like that, you know, elaborate shading, beautiful cross-hatching. You know, newspapers were doing some pretty fine printing to show these elaborate uh, uh, shading techniques Mm -hmm. and texture techniques. And look here. We have solid blacks and solid whites and clean straight lines. Uh, there's no such thing as a light gray shadow. The shadow behind Tintin is the abyss of <laughs> Satan's soul. The guy in the black jacket—he might has might as well be a physical a black hole forming that will suck the Earth in. I mean, it's just absolute. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, there's and, only and, two colors here. Right, it's white and black. That's it. And there's no sophisticated texturing. And look at how crude some of it is. So Tintin is supposed to be wearing this uh, sort of checkerboard clothing. And there's no variation in the checkerboard lines. Somebody literally just took a ruler and drew straight across. It looks like it was done by a young child when given a ruler. Right, it's very crude. I mean, if you were wearing checkerboard pants... The lines are not going to perfectly line up while you're sitting on a chair Mm -hmm. because perspective and angle is going to change it. Mm -hmm. But somebody just sat here and drew a line with a ruler straight through. Mm -hmm. You can even see where the lines in his arm line up with the pants. Mm -hmm. It It looks very low effort. Right. And while the technique improves over time, the aesthetic of these clean lines and simple colors remains. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't hurt... ...that this worked well even with very simple printing technology. Mm. Doesn't hurt. Although things like the lines were just poor art. Now, Hergé has said that he wanted to do things like go to the Orient, go to America. He was fascinated by America. Now, of course, his perception of America was what reached Belgium newspapers... You know, Al Capone and Indians and these very stereotypical, Mm -hmm. you know, we were a country of gangsters and savage Indians to him. Mm -hmm. And but but instead, Wallace said, no, we've got to send Tintin to Russia and show how evil the Soviets are. And so this first one is just a giant bag of propaganda. In fact, Tintin gets on the train and he's headed across Europe. And one of the, the... So, he gets on and he's saying goodbye to this figure with a pipe, which is probably Wallace, although he's not named, Father Norbert Wallace. And Tintin says, I'll send you some postcards and vodka and caviar. So long. And somebody takes his photo and the first time we hear Snowy talk to us, he says, I've been told they have fleas there. <laughs> <laughs> So, Tintin falls asleep in the seat, and we see this this unkempt Bolshevik, you know, in the car with him. I think the dirty little bourgeois is asleep. Time for action. He must never get to Russia. He'd report what's going on. This in here will stop him for a long while, if not for keeps. One of the best remedies yet discovered for curiosity. And he leaves behind a bomb to explode. And, you know, he has all the subtlety of Boris and Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle. (laughs) Um, It's hilarious. So, does Tintin escape by being clever? Does Tintin escape by luck? No, the whole thing explodes. The train car explodes and he just somehow didn't get hurt by some bizarre miracle. Even though his clothes are torn up and literally the walls of the car have been torn away. But he's fine. But he's fine. Lucky little boy. Right. So, he's basically arrested and taken away. And he escapes prison by a prison guard coming in. And then he beats up the prison guard and takes his clothes. Now, this becomes an ongoing theme with Tintin. While the primary themes of Tintin are supposed to be these idealistic principles... About courage, loyalty and friendship He solves most of his problems By beating people up Well he did say Most of his inspiration came from Boy Scouts Right Oh and I should note I forgot to say this He actually left the Boy Scouts Because Father Wallace basically told him They weren't Christian enough And he joined a Catholic scouting organization Right. Sorry. So, the story involves, you know, these ridiculous car chases and hilarious scenes. Um, Tintin falls out of trees into bad guys' cars and speeds away. Planes chase him. Trains hit the car. And he's miraculously fine just hanging on to the front of the train. Um, you, you know, it, 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 it's absurd. It's, it's made for little kids. hmm It's ridiculous. And as we go on and on, we see more and more of this strong anti-Soviet propaganda that he was put in here to do. And we have a great scene where he reaches a Russian factory and there is a Bolshevik outside talking to these foreigners. And he says, contrary to the tales put out by the bourgeois nations, our factories work to full capacity. Look. English Communists... Oh, sorry. I'm reading in the accent. Tintin is around the side and says, Look, English Communists being shown the beauties of Bolshevism. Um, and we talked in uh, uh, the prologue of From Hell about, you know, English Communism and uh, the, the, the inspector's attitude about that being middle-class people who are delusional about, you know, a revolution. And... Th- th- that's what they're making fun of here too. We've been making fun of the same people for a hundred plus years. And so Tintin walks around to stick his head in the factory. And because we saw all these smokestacks pumping out smoke from production. And what he sees is a Bolshevik feeding straw into a fire where the smoke's being funneled out just to create the illusion of construction. And somebody else is banging hammers against Tin plates that are hanging from the ceiling to create the sound of machinery. And of course, Snowy has to have a comment. It must be a Russian jazz band. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Snowy really is like the humor that keeps this going and keeps it from just being painful at times. I mean, you kind of have to love Snowy, who's of course a dog, right? Uh huh. Um, and as we go, 1010 sees people starving and not able to eat, and kids begging for food in the streets. So the lesson is very clear that uh, uh, communism in Russia isn't working and it's a bad thing. In fact, there's one just completely over-the-top scene where you see all these people in the stereotypical traditional Russian dress and there are Bolsheviks at the front with guns pointed at the crowd saying, Comrades, you have three lists before you. The first is that of the Communist Party. All those who oppose this list raise their hands. Who says no to this list? Now, of course, they say nobody because they all have guns pointed at them. Nobody, then I declare the Communist Party list elected unanimously. Um, the the anti Soviet propaganda is not subtle. Damn. Right. And as we go on and on, there's more ridiculous jokes. Tintin is trapped in sewers. He tries to pull open a metal grating on a sewer to escape, but can't until he sneezes, but the sneeze blows it off. Um, You know, it's just silly kid stuff. Boat races, car races. Uh, Tintin has to put a car together, but, you know, then it... It falls apart later on and he can't figure out how to fix it, even though he literally put a car together from scratch earlier. And by the end of it, he heads back to Belgium and files his report. By the way, in all the 1010 things and all these adventures he gets in, presumably as a reporter, I think he only files reports two or three times ever. (laughs) Oh. So... You know, he may be a great adventurer, but not a very good reporter. That's why they sent him out, so they don't have to deal with him. Right. And, th- and there's other hilarious things that go on. There's uh, a-, a whole gag storyline where there's a tiger, but maybe it's not really a tiger. But Snowy ends up in a tiger costume. And the tiger gets scared, and then other animals get scared. And then other animals chase Snowy, who brings the animals to create confusion so that Tintin can escape. Um, it, It's convoluted And I think fun Snowy working overtime over there Yeah, I mean Snowy is the underappreciated hero Definitely As most dogs are in uh-huh. stories I mean let's just be honest And then in the next one Is the Adventures of Tintin Reporter for Le Petit In the Congo oh. Now this is a, this, this is One that has created some consternation over time. Dogs. Um, It has not aged well in some ways. And Hergé went back and edited parts of it in future editions to hide it. And uh, this partially reflects that Hergé didn't know anything. Now, Hergé was criticized later for some of his elements in here. And we we will talk about them as we go. Because trust me, there's no shortage of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hergé basically went, I didn't know better. You know, when he, when people pointed out to him his horrible representation of black people, you know, people from Africa and African descent, he basically said, look, I never knew a black person growing up. Um, which I believe. I mean, Belgium was incredibly white, and they had colonies in Africa, but Africans didn't come back to Belgium back then. Mm-hmm. And He said, everybody told me that this is what they were like. And that they were basically like a different race of humanity that was subhuman. And when everybody tells you this and nobody tells you otherwise, you kind of assume it's true. Mm -hmm. And you can be cynical about this and say that later on he said this and changed representations just to sell comics. And that might actually be true. It Mm -hmm. would Fit With his behavioral pattern But there's nothing to actually suggest That he was lying either Mm -hmm. Um, And we do know That when he got away from Wallace uh, When they were separated And he started doing more (coughs) Without that sort of uh, Agenda and oversight That he started doing more research And doing more fair representation Of other kinds of peoples Mm -hmm. So he may have truly just not known better Right and of course it's possible for both to be true mm-hmm. He may have just Wanted to avoid controversy and sell comics And he may not have known better mm-hmm. I, There's nothing necessarily Contradictory in those two things mm-hmm. So in this uh, He heads off to The Congo to a Belgian uh, 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 A part of the Belgian Empire colony, right And We see just right off the bat This is like page 2 and look at this representation of a black porter on the ship. It is, it, it, it is out of the worst racist cartoons um, you could imagine from the 19th and 20th century. Oh. Oh. With that sort of coal black, uh, uh, giant lipped, uh, cartoony black figure. And it gets worse from here. It I gets are, worse. I already feel slimy. W- I mean, I mean, the figures look like monkeys. They look like human monkeys. Yeah. Um, which, of course, black people were often basically not even basic. They were called monkeys, and they were seen as a lower form of humanity mm-hmm. a- a- and genetically inferior by the same people who didn't believe in evolution um, or you know genetics. <laughs> but you know, when genetics became important to them, it mattered when it fit their argument and and people published articles back then, you know claim you know even medical doctors claiming, oh well, here's the physiological reasons why they're not real people, and that they're like children, something that ten ten echoes. <coughs> oh, sorry about that, my throat is dry, folks now. As we go in this story, you know, we get an antagonist who immediately pops up who occurs throughout the series. And part of his impact is he ends up throwing Snowy overboard. And we get this really painful exchange where a black porter comes up after Tintin has been exposed to an electrical shock. And he's knocked out for a minute. So the porter is supposed to save Tintin. But he's one of these black you know, drawn like a monkey porters mm-hmm. and he goes Hey catching electric shock is no good and Snowy's in the water freaking out Catch Master Dog this here real good life belt and throws him a life preserver um so he's not using the right word for it, hits the dog who starts to drown, then turns to Tintin who's waking up and goes He just sink to bottom, master And Tintin goes, and you did nothing to save him? Well, now you'll see what a real man does. And then jumps in and saves Snowy, despite there being sharks and all that. But Tintin here talks about how the black black people are like children. And this was part of the propaganda that Father Wallace wanted promoted. In fact, the whole reason for Tintin going to the Congo was that the Belgian colonies were not well supported in Belgium and people didn't want to divert resources there and so he wanted to show how they had a God given mission to go there and save the black natives from themselves basically and that people should be volunteering to go travel to the Congo and participate in the colony so this was another propaganda effort And it's painful. It is just painful. Um, Now, of course, there's more promotion for the magazine. We see these natives in the Congo watching the boat come up. And, you know, a child is holding the kid's version of the newspaper. And some of the scenes are just comical and funny. Like, there's one where Snowy gets stuck on the back of a crocodile in the river and has to be saved. And... It's, it's just a funny comical scene. But then it, it gets worse and worse and worse. And some of it's just painful. Like the one where Tintin shoots a monkey, skins it, and then wears its skin to go climb up in the trees and face the monkeys. What? That's... And, and I'm sure it was funny at the time, but it reads kind of horrifically now. That's that's horror movie stuff I know right (laughs) And then he walks back into camp And we get to see The stupid black people again Bad bad talking monkey Him eat tin tin And Snowy looks at the reader and says How can you be afraid of a monkey Um well they'll throw poop at you For one And some (laughs) of that stuff will give you serious diseases So you know I'd be afraid of them Snowy you should know better You've been smart up until this point Mm, Really so, you know, along the way, Tintin fights and Almost gets eaten by an elephant Snowy saves him from the elephant Because Snowy needs to save the day Right, um, and all this goes on and on and on In fact, at one point, Snowy tears off the lion's tail And Tintin puts a small string around the lion To pull it into camp Showing how a, a real white man can conquer nature Unlike the ignorant black man Right. I mean, it's it's, it's bad. Oh, it's, it, it's so racist. I, so racist. God, these pages are giving me secondhand embarrassment. Yeah, it's painful. It's painful. And, in fact, there, there's a scene here where Tintin is brought in to teach at the school and he says, my dear friends, today I'm going to talk to you about your country, Belgium. Now, in later versions, uh, by, by which, uh, later on, Belgium gained, uh, Congo gained its uh, independence from Belgium, and Hergé went in and changed this to be teaching mathematics, because he was trying to distance from it. And he changed some of the representations. For example, um, here's one panel that I pulled off the internet that somebody else showed a difference. This was redrawn when it was colorized. And this horrible blackface monkey figure uh, was Make replaced a with a white man who looks like a human. So, Hergé changed elements over time. But he definitely regretted these elements in the stories. The, now, I'm going to skip Volume 3 here. And Lord's know, I'm not going to try to go through all these. I'm only doing three of them. Oh. Oops, sorry. Uh, he did... For the third one, he finally got to take Tintin to America. It took him long enough. Wasn't terribly flattering. The Native Americans, not exactly what we call a woke representation by any stretch. But again, he was working with what he knew. Now, by the time we get to the fourth one, which is what I want to talk about here, uh, he's no longer working for Father Norbert Wallace, and he's working independently. And the whole reporter for Le Petit is gone. And we just have The Adventures of Tintin, the Blue Lotus. Now, Hergé had wanted to take Tintin to China early on, and now finally gets to do so. Oh, I'm... And one of the things I skipped, uh, and I forgot to mention, was that if there is a scene in Tintin in the Land of the Soviets, where the Soviets hand him over to their communist friends from China, and they have this extremely racist representation of the Chinese torturers. Uh, It's bad. So now we're going to China, and you'd be forgiven for thinking, we're about to experience racism on a whole new level. That's what I was expecting. But by now, Hergé's no longer working for Wallace. And Hergé's being allowed to, A, tell stories that are about the adventures he's interested in, and he's being allowed to do research to represent things more accurately. Mm -hmm. And now, I, I we start with the Blue Lotus, I think, is the first of the real Tintin Adventures. Because they're the first of Hergé's idea of Tintin. Mm-hmm. Rather than being a vehicle for Father Wallace's uh, ideas of Tintin as a propaganda machine. Mm-hmm. And now we have color. We still see lots of flat color with that clean line style. But now we have things like little... Lines providing a little bit of texture for folding clo- cloth mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, one of the hounds is just flopping its ears around. And we get introduced to Indians. Tin is in India. and They're drawn look, like people. They're drawn like people. They're brown-skinned people. Um, right. And the story then takes him to China... And there's an elaborate adventure in China. Very elaborate, actually. with A lot of interesting things. But the difference... I mean, we see it here on page 5. When we first saw Chinese characters in the land of the Soviets, they were small, round, all with Fu Manchu mustaches and just completely evil-looking. And now, our first look at Chinese guys includes a rickshaw porter who's just slightly yellow skinned with a straw hat and a blue shirt and green pants and pulling a rickshaw around. He looks like a person just doing his business. Yeah. We look in the background and they're all drawn differently. Like people would be right. And none of them look like caricatures. Mm -hmm. And we have somebody in a more traditional Chinese outfit. We have people Chinese and Western clothes. We have bald, we have clothes, we have people carrying boxes. We've got women just walking along the street um and the city, you know, has a bunch of chinese signs up because of course businesses advertise their businesses and all that. Mm-hmm. But it it looks like a city. Mm-hmm. And it continues. And in fact, the first really bad guys we meet are a bunch of racist Europeans mm-hmm. in the city who abuse the natives and treat them like trash mm-hmm. because they're not Europeans. So here we have in the first of the 1010 stories it really takes place under Hergé's own control and he's allowed to do research and it's not a propaganda vehicle anymore and we're starting to see those racist tropes reversed. Mm -hmm. Um, Now maybe he grew as a person during this time, I don't know, but we see 1010 now being about that truth and loyalty and if the friend is Chinese and he makes Chinese friends here who are noble people Mm -hmm. and they fight for him and he fights for them. Mm -hmm. And we start to see not this European ideals, but these global humanist ideals Mm -hmm. where people who exhibit these traits like loyalty, um, are more important than the culture they come from or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a really fun story. Mm -hmm. With a lot of adventure As the later Tintins are Mm -hmm. So I don't want to go on too long And I certainly don't want to break the plot down For people bit by bit Uh, I do want to recommend For those interested in Tintin That you start with Tintin And The Blue Lotus I I think it's the first really good Solid Tintin to read No one should have to go through that racist stuff But it is interesting from a historical And literary perspective Yeah. Okay So we're going to leave it off there. Uh, We're around the 50 minute mark. And keep reading comics. Bye.